suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Yes, welcome, dear listener. Welcome, everyone in the, uh, on the broadcast who are watching. This is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast, episode 223. Uh, I'm Trevor, the Iron Fist. As always with me, Scott, the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Paul. G'day, listeners. And Paul, the 12th man. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Scott. G'day, listeners. We've had a busy uh, week of things happening. This is a podcast. If you're tuning in for the first time, we talk about uh, news and politics, sex and religion, particularly focusing on Australia, but we'll also look at world events when appropriate. And uh, tonight we're going to kick off with a bit of a look at the great debate between Fiona Patton and Martin Isles of the ACL, which was at the Press Club. And I watched that, so I've got some thoughts about that. And then last week, 12th Man, we were talking about renewable energy and whether it was possible to replace coal fire with uh, renewable energy and got quite a big sort of list of things to get through with all those concepts. Mm -hmm. And after that, maybe a little bit of Donald Trump threatening the world and up to all sorts of mischief. I mean, normally the sorts of things that Donald Trump has been Mm -hmm. saying, if any other president said it at any other time... We would have created a special episode. We would have gone to where, oh, my God, the president's gone nuts. Can you believe what's happening? But mm-hmm. uh, alas, it's just yet another outrageous statement and path of the course. Exactly. Mm. You just got to, yeah, it's mm. path of the course. Yeah, it's quite frightening. So, hello, Will. Hello, Alison, in the chat room. So, well, the debate. Uh, so, this is at the National Press Club. Mm. Fiona Patton, uh, leader of the Reason Party, formerly Sex Party, um, she was uh, debating Martin Isles of the ACL about the religious discrimination bill. So I sat down and watched it. I missed probably, I suspect, the first two or three minutes, which would have been sort of of Martin Isles' introduction. And the stream that came through kind of cut off right on the one-hour mark, so I'm not sure how much was said afterwards. So there might have been two minutes at the beginning and I don't know how much at the end that I might have missed, but anyway. Um, yeah, I found that too. Yeah. Just- died right at right. the hour mark and they, they were still going with it but mm. they got cut off. Mm. Mm. So, Scott, you saw it? What, what did, did you think? I did watch it. Um, Without being it, what, contaminated by the thoughts I've already expressed. It wasn't a complete disaster. Right. But I do think that I was disappointed in Fiona Patton's attack of the whole thing. Mm. I, did, I was expecting, I suppose, for her to be a little more forthright Mm. And I really thought that if anyone was going to have Martin Isles on his ass, it would have been her. Mm. But she didn't. Um, it was almost like she was being too polite, I felt. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't know whether or not that's me just being too critical of her or whether I was just thinking to myself, I really want to see this bastard go down because mm. I do want to see that bastard go down. There is no mm. doubt about that. Mm. But um, it wasn't a complete disaster, but it wasn't uh, – I don't think it was her best performance ever. Mm. That's uh, probably the 
fairest way I could put it. We should have sent Trevor. Well, that's what I thought. That was probably a fair assessment. I'll probably be a little bit harsher. Yeah, I know um, you're going to be harsher. Yeah, but... I'd be interested, Alison, if you watched it, uh, whether you thought or in the chat room, you know, score out of 10 or, or your thoughts on how it went. But for me, um, Martin Isles is a very polished performer. He is obviously used to standing up and giving his spiel on the topic of religious freedom, and I think he's done it a lot more. I mean, Fiona's a serving politician with a lot of things on the plate, with a lot of things happening, and it was clear that he was across the brief in detail more than she was. And the other thing was that this was a debate which degenerated into legal interpretations of the Religious Discrimination Act and what would be caught and what wouldn't and when and... He's a lawyer, like, yep. and so he was clearly, you know, as another lawyer watching it, um, running rings around her when it came to describing how the sections worked and mm. being able to say, well, what you just said uh, makes no sense because what you've talked about is something that's occurring in work, whereas the section we're talking about is about stuff occurring outside of work and, and things like this. And uh, I don't think Fiona had a full grasp of the entire bill and her focus was, and the focus of the whole debate was about that section 41, which was the section that talked about saying statements of belief and how that would be green, get a green light and you wouldn't be, like there was that guy Porteous in Tasmania who was hauled before the courts for making statements about... Marriage, marriage equality. Yeah. yeah. And uh, anti-discrimination acts were sort of r- raised to try and prevent him from saying stuff. And Section 41 is basically saying if you make a statement of a religious belief, you can't be held accountable under a religious discrimination yeah. act in the States. That's what the whole goddamn debate seemed to me to be about, was about Section 41 and about freedom of speech issues. And when we've talked about that bill, the least offensive part to us is the freedom of speech things because the three of us are kind of like, well, we're happy for people to say almost anything provided you're not inciting violence. So it's one of the sections of the Act that I don't really – doesn't worry me too much. And that was what the debate degenerated into was about the freedom of speech and the whole – issue of employment and uh, and the ability uh, and, and the sort of the, the way that religious folk are advantaged compared to secular people really wasn't explored properly. And I really don't think Fiona gave enough simple examples of, you know, a person in this situation could be sacked. You know, you're a volunteer working at... Um, Red Shield, op shop, and you could be sacked. Or yeah. are there really concrete examples where people would go, well, that's just clearly unfair. We don't want that happening. Um, she just got tied up in the legalese of it, I thought. So um, so what are you handing me there, Scott? It's just the uh, chat room. Has it died? Uh, no, it's still going. Okay. Yeah. So... Um, so, yeah, at the 30-minute mark, I was writing in my notes, uh, still talking about freedom of speech. At the 47-minute mark, I wrote, uh, still talking about uh, freedom of speech. 60-minute <laughs> mm. mark, the whole damn thing was about freedom of speech in Section 41. So, um, yeah. So, uh, 
I felt that she didn't really lay a glove on him and anybody mm. watching that debate would come out of it going, well, she said this, he said that, yeah. probably somewhere in the middle's fair, yeah. nothing too master in this mm. that we have to necessarily worry about. So, yeah. um, so it's a bit yeah. of a wasted opportunity for secularists. You, yeah, you think? I think so. But uh, to the National Secular Lobby's credit, I mean, they got to a venue like that and got to have a say. And while it mightn't have been perfect, at least they were there and had a chance to... The Maybe we need here. some so, legally trained um, ambassadors. Yeah, but, you know, like Luke Beck was in that uh, program, God forbid, yeah. and really he was soft on Yeah, he wasn't as on, strong... On it as well, like he was saying... Arguer either. Yeah, so... What's his is, background? It's philosophy. Uh, think, he's a constitutional it? lawyer. Oh, is he? Yeah, okay. so, you know, it's difficult for the National Secular Lobby because they need ambassadors of some sort of uh, fame, if you like, or celebrity status. Mm. and um, But then those ambassadors may not embrace fully <laughs> how much we would like anyway, yeah. these sort of uh, secular ideals. Mm. So you, you, you sort of you need them because you wouldn't yeah. get a gig like that otherwise. Um, but then you don't really control so much of what they're going to say. Mm. So it's a price you have to pay. So mm. hopefully they can parlay this into some future things where, you know, other debates where perhaps the president of the National Secular mm. Lobby will be deemed sufficient celebrity, you know, have some mm. sufficient celebrity status to yeah. appear and he can be more forthright and... Uh, um, and well, they have, a, they have two or three celebrity ambassadors, of course, Philip mm. Adams, although I don't get the feeling he's... Mm. All that active, mm. is it? Is he? And uh, Jane Carrow, she's pretty well known. Yeah. Uh, and, um, the and, and they've got their special interests. So, you know, Jane's more about education and yeah. private schools, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so. She's strong yeah. on public schooling, and yes. I give her full credit for that. Yeah. And who's the other legal eagle from Melbourne who was running for the Greens? Isn't he an. He's not an ambassador, is he? I don't know. Julian Burnside. Yeah. Is he yeah. associated with I National Secular not. Lobby? thought he was. I thought he was Not too. sure. But in any event, with this particular debate, it got down to such legal arguments that they would have been better off with Luke Beck, perhaps, as a constitutional yeah. lawyer who, who would have been across the detail of that a bit more. So, I don't, you know... So, a bit of a lost as opportunity. As yeah. Um, Shall we ask for a rematch? Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. So anyway, that was that. It was a bit of a letdown, I think. Mm, but anyway, if you're out there um, and you get a chance to watch it, let me know if you think I'm yeah. crazy in my assessment or not. So, But I really would have liked some more philosophical discussion mm. about, you know, my hobby horse of, hey, it's just an ideology. You're nothing special. Why, why should you be given anything mm. at all? Uh, and that and was. You, you, you can just make up your own doctrine, which is then protected. So I, it's not none just of that. an ideology; uh, it's a ludicrous ideology yeah, yeah. based on fairy tales. Yeah, no, none of that. That was raised by Fiona initially. She did raise it, but not very loudly or anything like right. that. And I thought to myself, "Geez, maybe she is going to get him." But then she didn't say anything and kept at it again. Mm. And that's the whole point. She said that you are you are setting yourselves up to be above the rest of us, which is what they are doing. That's what they feel they are. Absolutely. And I just thought if she'd hit that harder, then she would have landed a body blow on him. Plus there's this whole concept where Martin Isles 
believes that religious institutions have a religious ethos and that they should be able to conduct their institution according to their religious ethos. Mm. And you really need to say, look, that's relevant when we're talking about the appointment of priests and maybe mm-hmm. of the religious instruction teacher, mm-hmm. but not the gardener and not the math teacher. No, it has to be not. relevant to it. And mm. and to enunciate why that's unfair and the fact that they employ so many people yes. in teaching. And he was basically saying, well, when you sign up for a gig with a, with a Christian institution, you are given a list of, you know, ethical requirements mm. and you either accept them or reject them and mm. you, you are told up front what you're going to be compelled to do. And, of course, I would say, well, that's just uh, irrelevant to jobs that don't have a religious element to them. <laughs> but also then they were talking about Falau and it was the ideal opportunity to say, well, hang on, you don't think that when it comes to Falau because he was given a contract which mm. says you're allowed to do this and this and mm. this and he decided not to and we want to sack him and you're saying you can't do that because he needs to be able to uphold his faith. So mm. he was quite hypocritical with that and, um, of course, none of that came out. So, yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, that was the debate. Bit of a fizzer as far as I'm concerned. I think the ACL would be very happy with how it panned out. Mm. Yeah. I would have thought so. Mm. So Martin Niles has a legal background, does he? Yes, he does. Yeah. 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 I and he was very good. <coughs> very good. I have to say he was... So confident, so assured, on top of his brief. He wasn't at that uh, meeting we went to some time back, was he? No. Lyle Shelton's been at a few. Lyle Shelton was there, but there was another chap that spoke uh, (coughs) quite articulately at that meeting as well, I recall, but I don't uh, know who he was. Right. So um, uh, he did a lot better job than, say, Lyle Shelton would have done. I believe so. Oh, okay. he's, a, he's a dangerous. He's a dangerous he's foe. He's a Martin dangerous Niles, foe because indeed. he's incredibly mm. intelligent. Yeah. He's certainly very well mm. spoken, and he yeah. presents exceptionally well. And yeah. doesn't it surprise you when you come across someone who really is smart, and yet they believe this ludicrous nonsense? Yes, <laughs> it is. Yeah, I'm always amazed by that. I can yeah. understand stupid people believing it, mm. Mm. and there are enough of them in the world. But mm. when you come across really sharp-minded people. Mm. And you know they have but every just, opportunity mm. to investigate the v- veracity of these fairy tales, and and they don't want to go near them. But we've said this in the past with mm. tribalism yeah. that the smarter you are, the better your rationalisations for agreeing for to anything. the tribal position. Yes. So you actually get really clever yeah, yeah. At, at adopting your argument to yeah. to match in with the uh, with the tribal I argument. So, that's right. yeah. yeah, so. Um, so that's that. Um, I actually, uh, since the last time we spoke, Dean Stretton, remember Dean, who wrote a submission yeah. to yeah, yeah. the Ruddock the, Inquiry? In, from yeah. Sydney. Yes. He's a lawyer, isn't he? Yes. Barrister. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. He, he wrote an extremely good mm. uh, submission, didn't he? So he's written a submission on this religious discrimination bill and uh, there's a link to it on the website. If you look at the um, blog post by... Visiting contributors, you'll see a link to it there, a PDF. So great submission by Dean and just one part of it was where uh, we're talking about the way that people, the religious people, uh, are able to make a religious belief and it's not discrimination. And they can talk about anything at all that is pertaining to religious doctrine. But when it comes to a non-religious person the only thing they can say is something about religion <laughs> which will be sort of protected by the Act. So, mm. so whereas 
uh, religious people have an open field to talk about any topic under the sun that vaguely falls within their mm. doctrinal beliefs. So typically Christians could talk about, uh, you know, gay marriage or, um, you know, even climate change potentially, mm. I don't know. Um, with secular people, you're really limited to commenting on religious issues and being exempt from uh, from the act. And, and he was saying really... Um, you could have, for example, the following beliefs. One, abortion is morally wrong. Two, voluntary euthanasia is morally wrong. Uh, three, there are only two genders and a person cannot change their gender simply by identifying as a different gender. Four, marriage should only be between a man and a woman. Five, killing animals for food is morally permissible. So he said if you hold one of those beliefs on religious grounds, you'd be protected from discrimination under the bill. But it's entirely possible that you could hold one of those beliefs just as a philosophical ground, nothing to do with religion, mm. but you wouldn't be protected under the Act. And that was one of his arguments for saying how it's just treating religious people differently to secular people. He argued that. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and he's saying okay. that's wrong to give a special benefit to religious people. He said that. This oh. is, this is um, Dean Stretton. He's oh, Dean our, Stretton. Sorry, yeah. I, I was thinking of Martin Isles no, again. No, sorry. He's on Excuse our side. Me. Dean's on our yeah, side. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I agree with yeah. Dean. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just, I don't know why, yeah. but my mind went back to Martin yeah. Isles and yeah. I thought he's arguing against yeah. his own case now. No, there we That's, go. Okay. Sorry. Right. Now, last week uh, we talked about climate change briefly mm-hmm. and we were discussing about renewables and briefly whether it was possible to have a fully renewable system so i've done some economically possible of course i've done some research and you haven't had the chance to fully research but i'm going to give you the sort of nuts and bolts of my understanding so far Mm -hmm. and then if you come up with something different later on you can you can always chime in in a future episode and and disagree it will have to be a future episode unfortunately or somebody out there listening um might choose to Mm. so okay First of all, uh, the way this came up was because we were talking about the poll, which was, I think, in Essential, which said um, asking Australians whether they think climate change is, um, is real or not. And the, and the choices were climate change is happening and is caused by human activity, which was 63% of people, or we are just witnessing a normal fluctuation in the Earth's climate, which was 25%, mm-hmm. and the don't knows were 13%. And was one of our listeners got outraged, and he said, "That's just a false dichotomy." And I didn't really know what he was talking about at first, and he said, "Well, it should have had the answers of both or neither." So, um, so because I think he might have taken the view that well, it could be a bit of both that climate change is happening is caused by human activity and. It's because of normal fluctuations in the Earth. I agree with Walsh so, that so it, it could it, be quite right. So. It, it's often uh, a mistake to divide things into an either or. Yeah. Uh, so he wasn't happy with uh, with mm. the false dichotomy there. But anyway, Good that was you, what the uh, that was what the poll was about. Sixty three percent believe it's happening because of human activity, given the uh, limited choices they had on the form. Right. Uh, question is, do we as Australians care? And the uh, ABC has been conducting a poll about various issues of Australians and whether they care or not. So um, I'm going to switch the screen just so that uh, 
people watching on the live stream can see some of this. So I think they've, uh, about 50,000 people have logged in to the ABC survey. I only just found out about it today. I've got to go and do it. Yeah, oh, you're I, one of them? I did it a couple of days ago. Does it take long? No, not really. Ten minutes, mm-hmm. I don't know. And having done it, then they tell you the statistics. Mm. I haven't done it, but was did a screenshot yeah, for did. me of, yeah. of some of the results. So they asked people, or one of the answers was... Um, the proportion of people who said that uh, certain problems were affecting them personally, and the biggest one was climate change, 72%, mm. saving enough for retirement, 62 your health or the health of a family member, 56 and affording a home was 46 So a bunch of other ones, uh, job security, crime, providing for family. A bunch of issues, but the clear leader in that was 72% climate change. Mm. So that's a very strong sort of indication where people are saying it's affecting them personally. Are you surprised by that figure? It's a weird question how it's put, mm. you know, affecting which of these you problems were, are affecting personally. you personally or are going to affect you personally or, you know, anyway, I guess it's just saying people read a question but would probably go, what's important to you? What are you worried about the most? Mm. It's probably... What are you worried about the most would be how people would paraphrase the question. And it seemed like climate change was the top one. And that's... Fair enough? Yeah, that's, that would be my fair enough answer to that is that, you know, what's worrying you the most, the 72%, that would make sense. Yeah. But I didn't agree with the whole thing that it's going to affect me personally. Yeah. But I think people would read it as being, well, what's important to you? So, okay, that's uh, 70... From That's from ABC, so... I'm not sure, but there were... I don't recall the exact wording, but I'm pretty sure there were other questions that were related to your, you know, your pers- personal uh, state, like mental state, emotional state, things like that. Mm. They, they did ask questions about um, loneliness, about how often you have sex, things like that. There were 27 worry factors. Mm. So out of those, the top one was climate change okay. as, a, as a worry factor. Mm. There we go. What are you worried about? Climate change. Um, then they ask people, from what you know about climate change, which the following statements comes closest to your opinion? Climate change has been established as a serious problem and immediate action is necessary. 52% of men agree, 68% of women agree. Mm. And uh, next one down, there is enough evidence that climate change is taking place and some action should be taken. That was uh, 21% of women and 26% of men. So... Take those two together and you've got uh, 89% women and 78% of men say that climate change has been established as a serious problem and immediate action is necessary or at least there's enough evidence that it's taking place that some action should be taken. So that's a big majority of people who think that. What do you think about the gap between men and women at, at that top one? Climate mm. change has been established as a serious problem. Immediate action is necessary. 52% men, mm. 68% women. That mm. seems to me a significant uh, gap, isn't it? It is. And in the ones where people said, well, concern about climate change is unwarranted, mm. uh, men were 10%, women 5%. So yeah. people who think about climate change as being unwarranted are more likely to be men, to be white Australians, to be older and to live in regional or rural parts of the country, according to the survey. Mm. Interesting. Pauline Hansen supporter by the... 
No, I was just thinking. Extent. I was just thinking of my brother-in-law. That's all right. Yeah, you know, does, does he fit that? Does he? Well, he's an older bloke. He's mm-hmm. well. I fit that, but I'm not a Pauline Hanson supporter. <laughs> no, I know that. No, but you don't you think that concern about that. climate change is unwarranted. No, I don't. You, but you I, think it's one I of fit, the first two. You think I fit the other parts of the profile. Yeah, you're probably in the category that says there's enough evidence that climate change is taking place, and some mm. action should be taken. Absolutely, I put you in there. Yeah, you're an enlightened white old man. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the interesting one, though. Uh, how much would you personally be willing to spend each year to help prevent climate change? And the, an- the possible answers were nothing, less than 100, between 100 and 500, between 500 and 1,000, between 1,000 and 2,000, or more than 2,000, and I don't know. Uh, so when we had close to 80% of people saying it's real, it's a genuine thing, we've got to do something about it, then they're asked how much do they want to spend and, <laughs> and only, uh, only 9% of people would want to spend more than $1,000 a year on it. It's not a lot, is it? That's pretty terrible, isn't it? And 21% less than would be nothing at all mm. And 18%, less than $100 a year. Seriously. I'd spend $100 on it. Yeah. (laughs) But when people say action should be taken, but then in the same survey, you've got uh, 40% who are only willing to spend a maximum of $100. It's just bullshit. Like, seriously. That's how you really test how much people... When you test people's hip pocket, when you find out... They should have added to the question... How much would you be willing to spend if it, was, if it was a tax deduction? Right. I reckon they would have got a significant, significantly different uh, number, wouldn't you? Well, I don't know. If it were a tax de- deduction, surely. Well, yeah, you still pay for it. Like, you still lose money from yeah, but you tax get deduction. A fair, yeah, you get some of it back in your tax return. Uh, you end up... How much do you get I, back usually for a deduction? Well, it depends on, what, depends on where your income, on your income is. Level. Yeah, if, if you're on you're the top in, marginal rate, right, you, get, you get 45% back. That's just sort of a 50% discount on it. But, but if you're like most people that are paying up to 30% tax, then they only get 30% of it back. Why was that all? Yeah. So the more tax you pay, the more you get back in your deductions. Mm. Well, the, the more the more the deductions become worth. Yeah. I had no idea. I thought it was the same for everybody. No, it's right. not the same for everyone. It's, oh, it depends no, no. on your, it depends the on the higher income your tax bracket, the, the the more. I was born in the wrong economic <laughs> class. <laughs> you were right. So there, that's a good background on on do we care? Well, we say we do. Do we really care? No, I don't think we do. We don't. I, if you're not prepared to spend mm. more than. <laughs> More than $100 a year, 40% of people not even prepared to do that. That's, you don't care. You're bullshitting. <laughs> and that, that, that is the whole point. You know, you just got to look at the fact that Tony Abbott was able to destroy Julia Gillard's carbon tax mm. and he destroyed it he and did. he did it by a- appealing to the hip pocket nerves. He did, yeah. Mm. And he was, he was able to destroy it and he destroyed it very effectively. Now, the carbon tax was quite modest. You know? Yeah, and it might have made some kind of difference if it had continued right up until the present day. Absolutely, it would have done. And people like Malcolm Turnbull, he, he probably would have embraced it, I, I dare say, even if he'd... Well, he wanted to support it and he did support the CPRS. 
he crossed the floor and voted with the government mm. on that, which is when Rudd was still Prime Minister. Mm. And he argued strongly for it and he didn't get he didn't get anywhere. But anyway. Dear listener, we're just heading into territory where I'm just going to quickly talk about is there really a climate emergency? Uh, what is the cost of renewables and can we have 100% renewables? That's, that's where we're heading. So, so bear with me as we, as we head down this journey together, hand in hand. Anyone in the chat room actually alive? I know Will and Alison said hello and there looks like about 11 people watching, but I'm just worried whether the chat room's actually functioning. So just... Say something so that I know it's actually working because I'm starting to think You might have worried them all to death with M- all maybe. these statistics. <laughs> okay. So, um, so I've got a link to some articles here. All the stuff I'm talking about, of course, is in the show notes. And this uh, particular one I've just plucked out of some Google search I did was from a guy called Paul Gilding, who is a fellow at the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainable Leadership. And he says that scientists warn that even if all of the Paris emissions commitments are met, temperatures will surpass 1.5% warming uh, and then increase by 3 to 5% by 2100 uh, with additional warming beyond. So the last time the world was that hot, which is 4% warmer, was 15 million years ago during the Miocene period. So it's a while since it's been that hot. So if that happens, which is what the scientists are saying, seas could rise by more than two metres this century. Between two-thirds and all of the glaciers that feed Asia and South America's most important rivers will likely disappear. Uh, We could see tropical regions in Asia, Africa, Australia and the Americas become largely uninhabitable for much of the year and a large proportion of humanity, estimated at two billion refugees, will need to relocate. So... Just parts of the world will become uh, intolerable. So that's under the worst case scenario, isn't it? No. So uh, there's lots of unknowns. So we can't Mm. say whether that's going to happen. Um, The question is whether there is a reasonable likelihood of such an outcome. And human beings tend to err on assuming the more positive outcomes that we hope for. And so... It's unknown exactly, and it could go in either direction. So it could be better than that, or it could be worse again. We just don't know. So this guy was saying that as a matter of risk management and giving the risk that we face and the probabilities, you just have to um, see that as a high likelihood and and plan for it. The so-called cautionary principle. Indeed. So so that's, uh, you know, a short... um, synopsis of is there an emergency next question then is about renewables versus coal and i've got a lot of stuff here initially from an abc fact check report and uh sort of the reason for this article was because at the time they were referring to something that malcolm turnbull had said where he was saying that renewables plus storage are cheaper than coal or nuclear for new power generation, and they were looking at that and saying, is that correct? So so we're going to look at the cost of renewables versus coal and see what the story is. Um, and there's a sort of complicating factor here is, is the amount of backup you need depends on the amount of renewables that you've got. So uh, for most states except South Australia, this is not an issue yet. So what they're saying is that basically until you get to 50% renewables, 
there's enough flexibility in the system that you don't need to worry about extra backup storage. So up to 50% renewables, you could replace coal-fired st uh, stations, um, coal-fired power stations with renewables up to 50% and you don't have to worry about uh, extra storage. That's what the statistics tell you. Because the coal-fired power stations at can 50%, supply... Yes. The ups and downs will be catered for. During the night for. when, you know... When the wind's not blowing. When the wind's not blowing, when uh -huh. the sun's not shining. We'll get to that. Mm. So, so up to 50% in a state, uh, you can just keep adding your renewables up to that point and not even worry about extra storage. Okay? So, energy is typically measured in megawatt hours... And a megawatt hour is, is roughly what 300 homes use during one hour. Oh, that's okay. interesting. And uh, comparing direct running costs can paint a misleading picture because some technologies are more expensive to build but cheaper to run. Mm. Others have lower capital costs but higher running costs. So what you need to do is use a measure called the levelised cost of electricity where you incorporate the cost of the capital and you depreciate it throughout the lifespan of the infrastructure and then add the operating cost to that to get the levelised cost. So it's really the capital costs amortised out plus the running costs and that accounts for the differences where you've got a lot of infrastructure up front or you don't have a lot of infrastructure up front. Clear as mud so far? Yeah, that's Good. fine. So the levelised cost of uh, electricity... For coal, the CSIRO and the Australian Energy Market Operator, uh, there's various figures that float around, but you can pretty safely say uh, $96 per megawatt hour for coal. Um, that's for black coal, brown coal even a bit more, 107 But around the $100 mark, keep that in mind for coal. Now, some people will give you a slightly cheaper estimate. But if you were to build a coal-fired power station, there's a risk premium that uh, anybody lending to build a coal-fired power station is going to add about 5% risk premium because coal's on the nose mm. and it's a lot to invest and you're not sure that you're ever going to be able to use it. So mm. you've got to add that into any figures. So around $100 mark roughly. Uh, the levelised cost of wind and solar. Wind, $57. Solar, $53. So nearly half the cost of a coal generation from megawatt hour of... So that's, all, that's a big difference. Mm. Yep. Um, so, uh, so in terms of actual uh, running costs, you could easily... Well, and that's the levelised cost. That's mm. taking into account infrastructure. So it's a no-brainer you would have renewables... But how many could. windmills would you have to build to produce the same amount of power as one coal-fired power station? Uh, it doesn't matter because I've given you the levelised cost of mm, a megawatt hour. It is a cost, yeah. That's so true, I've, I've told you, looking at how much a coal-fired power station can generate, mm. the cost per megawatt, roughly 100. Mm -hmm. Windmill, cost per megawatt, half that. I understand So that. it doesn't matter. You just build enough to... To, um, to have enough electricity. Mm. So the point is that um, 
Uh, and there's actually contracts now, like the state government Victoria entered into a contract with a wind farm who basically agreed to supply electricity at 50 to $60, so on a long-term renewable contract. So these are not uh, fanciful figures. Mm-hmm. The difficulty then is about storage. And this is where we were coming to, where you were saying, well, I don't think you can have 100% renewable because what if the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow, what's going to happen? So uh, uh, I'm going to skip ahead to an article. Um, uh, Let me just see if I can get the heading over here. Bear with me, sorry. Is is 100% renewable feasible? And this was a report by uh, these three guys, Blakers, Lou and Stocks at the Australian National University. And what they did was they looked at uh, climate in Australia over, I think, a three-year period for every hour of the day. How much wind was there in various pockets in Australia? Mm -hmm. How much sun was shining? And would it have been possible to uh, construct a system that would have relied just on uh, wind and solar and a little bit of hydro that's already existing Mm. and without any coal fire at all, and could we have created a system that would be able to have supplied power for every hour of the day during those years? Three years. Yeah, Mm. looking at the weather patterns and temperatures and wind Mm. and whatever. And basically, how much would it cost? And they said, good news, it's possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... The way that you do it is uh, through pumped hydro energy storage, P-H-E-S. So pumped hydro is where you have uh, a pond of water up in the hills and a pond of water down in the valley and you have a pump in between them and a pipe. And basically when you've got excessive wind and solar power, you run the pump to pump the water up to the top dam. And then during periods where the wind's not blowing and the sun ain't shining, you run the water through and generate electricity. Yeah, through a dynamo yeah, on the way. turbine yeah. or whatever. So uh, the power that you use pumping the water up to the top pond and then the power that you get back as it comes through, uh, you, you get 80% return. Mm-hmm. So you're going to lose 20%. But that's not bad, hmm. like in the scheme of things. Hmm. And this is uh, a method of storage of power that's being used around the world mm-hmm. for ages. Small fun fact. Wyvernhoe Dam has got this. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? No, I didn't yeah. until I, I read yeah. your show notes. Yeah. yeah. So Wyvernhoe Dam, dear listener, in uh, South East Queensland, uh, was constructed about 30 years ago. Uh, for water Flood storage. mitigation and Flood water storage. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And they created a little split yard dam, it was called, beside mm. it, which basically pumps water up during times of plenty of power and mm. lets it through when we need the power. And yours truly was a construction worker class three. Really? Who worked on the split yard really? uh, little saddle dam as they were creating the, the, the little oh. uh, hydro dam there. So that's Did you join a union? I was part of a union, yes, and it was quite good money, I can tell you, and I earned in six months enough money to go backpacking 
to South America and, and North, uh, North America. America for yeah. nine months, yeah. um, living quite nicely. Yeah, so well done. So that's a little bit of history for you there. So, so anyway, um, so essentially, what they're saying is that obviously you've got to spend money on these ponds and these pumps and whatnot. Mm. But uh, Australia is quite a hilly country, and the hills are nearby where we all are living on the east coast like when you fly on an aeroplane and you're looking down it's quite hilly isn't it you see lots of little hills and stuff and so they worked out that the levelized cost of renewable electricity where you built enough of those dams um for that sort of hydro stuff would be 93 dollars per megawatt hour Mm. so still under the cost of, of coal of coal not far under no, but given the benefits mm. for our climate, um, pretty good. What about the cost of uh, sacrificing all that land to storage ponds? Uh, surprisingly, you know, all that's incorporated as part of it, but mm. a lot of this is kind of the, the way it was described in the report, and there's links to it, dear listener, go and read them, was um, these are areas that are not in national parks, they're not of any... Um, particular importance and you're looking at a one hectare sort of pond at the top and a one hectare at the bottom and 25 metres deep and and basically there are maps showing uh, typical scenarios in different locations that they found where um, and they've named the actual locations and they've done all the costings and and that's what they've come up with. Mm-hmm. So um, oh, for those who are watching on the... Uh, if there are people, actually. I don't even know if there are people watching on the broadcast. I'm going to show it on the, on the broadcast. So, um, so there's lots of places in Australia where it can go. The other thing that you would need to build is a new uh, a sort of a tra- new high-powered transmission line, sort of a backbone running down through the country that allows the quick exchange of electricity over large distances. So... That's also factored into the cost, but mm-hmm. so the two main things are this um, this uh, storing of the power through these uh, little uh, dams and and a better main backbone to distribute the electricity through the country. And what they said was that according to the study they did, uh, they looked at it on an hourly basis. Uh, there might have been minutes within those hours that they couldn't account for, but basically on an hourly basis they could. And they said, look, looking at the scenarios, there might be one or two times every three years where there's not enough power. Mm. And they said because of weather predictions, improved weather predicting, and you know it's going to come. And what you can say is to... uh, an aluminium smelter, for example, guys, uh, we're going to have a problem in two in two days' time. You're going to have to shut down. And what they said was the extra cost involved in making the system big enough that you do not have to do that isn't justified and you'd be better off just paying a compensation to that company and saying mm. for the two days that you don't have power every three years, uh, here's a lump sum of money because... It, the actual cost of bumping the system up wasn't worth except, doing. Except that in something like a, a, a metals smelter, mm. my understanding is that you can't just shut them down and turn them back up again very easily. 
that's why you have to pay compensation. But even with compensation, I dare say you might chase some of those industries out of the country if, uh, if they foresaw that that might be the case. If you're only closing down for two days every three years. Yes. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. But my understanding is with some of those um, manufacturing, you know, processing uh, technologies, you need to keep it, like, fired up. But basically 24/7. they were saying to, to, to avoid that happening was going to mm. cost an extra... $2 billion per five years. So mm. you can pay a lot of money as a, as a compensation to avoid that. So mm. when they arrive at their figure, which I said was $97, yep. it allowed for that compensation. Yeah. It's uh, all hypothetical so, anyway. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, um, uh, and I've got a, a link so to it. It is theoretically possible to go 100% renewable then. Indeed, according to this report, yeah. Mm. And so I wonder if they need to avoid having to pay out those compensations, whether or not you could have a gas-fired power station that's set on low all the time mm. and just on those couple of days you just got to fire it up. Well, another mate of mine, fun fact, worked at a plant in Townsville and this one's owned by Camalco or something like that. It runs on jet fuel and when the wholesale price reaches a worthwhile level, he might be at home and he gets a text message that says, fire up the turbine. Oh, really? And he, on his mobile phone, uh, using an app, starts the turbine up and then gets in his car and drives into the factory into the, and it's, it's already warming up and they get it going and literally within an hour they're supplying the grid and earning bucket loads. And that, that facility sometimes earns in a matter of days all the money it needs for an entire year. Like mm. when that wholesale price was just crazy, it right. was making unbelievable money. So so you can have things like that um, sitting there for an emergency if you really wanted to as well and accept the carbon emissions from... And that was running on a, like a jet fuel. So, mm. yeah. So there you why, go. I wonder why jet fuel and not Because it was just gas. so quick and they could generate a lot of electricity so, like very quickly rapidly, and yeah. rapidly mm. and yeah so interesting mm. so there's another little graph that just uh, shows how that would have panned out in this particular scenario and you can see when the times are good the uh, it pumps water up and when they need the power the water runs through and I reckon that's a really ingenious way of doing things so mm. uh, yes please Scott so there you go that's there's lots of there show is, notes there. There is, of, of course, an environmental cost for, for dams. And, you know, I mean, this is well known that wherever you build a dam, you, you lose habitat for, for something, for some kind of wildlife or... Yes, you know. but when you're flying over the, um, the countryside, you know, on your way down to Melbourne or Sydney, you're seeing lots of areas, and these are not in national parks that would be suitable, so... Yeah, you yeah. still... Sub- you know, you're still inundating something. Yeah. Yeah, but the thing was set up, Trevor was saying that you just set up two ponds that are only about a hectare each. Yes. So you've got a pond up the top of the hill that's a hectare, and you've got a pond down the bottom of the hill that's a hectare. Yep. And joined I, I, by a pipe. Ideally about 700 metres at least in elevation between them. And yeah, I, um, I doubt a hectare would be enough. No, that's the sort of area really? that they're talking about. A yeah. hectare? Yeah. And would, you, would it be economical to build all the pipeworks and the dynamos and everything just for a hectare of water? That's the surface and, you know, and then it's 25 metres deep. So, yes. 
just a hectare. That's yeah. not a big area. No. Well, let me see if I can find the exact uh, figure here. Uh, I'll come I back to it. I think it sounds but, like a pretty good idea. Hmm. You know, there's obviously a fair bit of work to go through it and that Quite sort of thing. Of work. But, you know, you've had the first, the first lot has been done hmm. and it's been done by academics and I think it's bloody good. Well, while we're... And then what, you know, that uh, bloke that came on the show that night that was talking to us about car batteries and all that sort of thing, mm. he was saying that the car batteries, once they've been used in the car, can then go on and become a second life at your home. Mm. So he said they're no longer good for vehicles, but they're yeah, fine yeah. for home. And people are installing uh, batteries at, at I don't know, house. but yeah. if they can get them cheaper for buying them off, off mm. the used, if mm. they're used and that sort of thing... Then if you've got battery storage at home, then you could have those couple of days where you've got the problem with electricity, mm. you could turn it off to the homes and then just have it going into the, uh, into the industries. Unlike conventional on-river hydropower, the off-river closed loop uh, requires pairs of hectare-scale reservoirs, rather like oversized farm dams. Located away from rivers in steep hilly country outside national parks, so, steep yeah. hilly country. Mm. Yeah. Steep hilly country is really only you know the east coast and the southeast coast of Australia, a little, little bit in the southwest. I mean, there there are hills all over Australia, no mm. doubt, but um, a lot of them are pretty shallow hills mm. in the in the centre. You've driven yeah, yeah, through Western but, Queensland, haven't yeah, you? but you don't need it in the west because the population is in all right. Yeah, uh, along the, the east coast the and in the, the southeast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there we go. Anyway, I thought that was all very interesting and that's the future mm. that we should be looking at. Did you see that story about um, people wanting to drain Lake Pedder? And do you have any thoughts on that? What's Lake Pedder? I don't, I Lake Pedder was an exceptionally beautiful natural lake in the mountains in, I think, southwest Tasmania somewhere. And it had a really unique kind of white quartz um, beach all around the lake and it was amazingly beautiful people used to go camping there beside the lake and you could even land a plane a light a light plane on the beach beside the lake and uh they dammed it and the lake was flooded and lost underneath the uh, the, the you know the raised level of the lake of course right but some environmentalists are saying look tasmania has so many dams more than more than enough that it's okay to drain one of them and try to reclaim this lost quite uniquely beautiful lake. Right. Yeah. You, you haven't seen that? No. I remember that no. story because I was told by that by a geography teacher that I had at school. Mm. And he said it, he went up there and he said it was absolutely breathtaking. Mm. But he said to get up there was so hard that he didn't think it was worth preserving because it was so hard to get there. So it was only worth preserving if he could get there. No, he 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 just concluded that it wasn't worth preserving. That it was in the wilderness where not ma- not many people would go. So why bother preserving it? Exactly. Yeah, I don't know. I think sometimes see, nature whole, yeah. nature's worth preserving just for its own sake, isn't it? This is the whole point. Bob Brown started in the environmental movement mm-hmm. opposing renewable energy. And he's also now turned up and he's opposed to that renewable energy thing with the windmills. Yes, on one particular island. Yeah, I know. I think he's going a little bit crackers in his old age. Mm. But, you know, 
<laughs> you just got to remember that he started his whole environmental crusade yeah. back in the 1980s when he was opposed to the uh, Franklin River Dam, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. Yep. Anyway. Right. I think um, the Lake Petter Dam is roughly in a, the same area. I think I don't know whether Lake Petter feeds into that same series of, of uh, dams and la- lakes, but uh, I couldn't tell you. it's in that area somewhere. Mm. Uh, if you're in the chat room, I'm sorry because I haven't been able to look at the messages, but I'm going to mm. try and do my best. Did to... you see the message from Wasa? Uh, no, what do you say? So, uh, okay, Facebook chat is working, but not restream. Um, okay, it is now. I think I can see it now coming through. So, okay. sorry if you were making comments in there. Bromman said Germany is in the process of phasing out both coal mining and coal power power generation. The government is putting a lot of investment into coal regions to develop new industries. And Warren says, in my view, energy supply currently can be either one, affordable and reliable, or two, reliable and low emissions, or three, affordable and low emissions, not all three. Well, have a look at that report, Was, and see if it changes mm. your mind, because yep. it seems to indicate you can have all three. There we go. Well, $93 a metric, $93 per kilowatt hour. Megawatt. Megawatt hour. You know, that's – it's cheaper than coal. Mm. Coal's $107 per megawatt hour. Mm. Well, that was for brown coal, but it was $100 a megawatt hour Mm. for black coal. It was a bit less. Arguably, if it's 50% more than that, we should still do it, given the disaster that's ahead of us if we don't Mm. fix up. Oh, God. Uh, emissions. You're preaching to the converted here. Mm. I agree with you. And, you know – then if you had a very slight uptick in your power bill, you'd just be able to sit there and sell people to suck it up, you know, because that's what you ought to be able to do to people. Mm. Mm. Hey, um, Lionel Shriver was in the news. What'd she do this time? Well, uh, she came out and said that... She's a bit of a contrarian, isn't she? Yeah. Mm. Uh, she was writing in The Spectator. Yeah. Mm. Which I'm very surprised you quoted from, Trevor. Yeah. So but why? Yeah. Because Trevor I, doesn't like The yeah, Spectator. Yeah, yeah. but I yeah. think I've, you know, warmed him to The Spectator. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll take credit for no, that. No, no. I'll take credit for that. So she said, um, she said, as of 2017... Worldwide carbon emissions. The US accounted for 13%, Canada 1.6%, Australia 1.1%, and the entire EU um, 9.6%. So the argument, uh, basically the West is responsible for 26% of emissions. By contrast, China is responsible for 29.3%. And so she was saying, don't blame the West because look at the figures. The West is not creating the problem. It's you don't think she has a point? No, because what's China doing? Making shit for the West. Not only for the, the West. West that no, the no, West, no, 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 no. But That's the West doesn't true. need to make. Yes, that, it is. No, it isn't. They're, it's they're manufacturing. bloody warships there's, there's, and planes. What, what, what creates, oh, come what on, creates carbon emissions? Come on. Manufacturing. Now, this is a big myth stuff. that everything China creates is for Western consumption is absolutely a myth. 
Does, the, does Chinese, the, West... the Chinese domestic consumption economy is big and getting bigger all the time. And eventually, like the West, they will be primarily geared up for domestic consumption and they're getting closer all the time. And they're building lots of shit. You know, they're creating lots of stuff for Chinese people. It's not all for Western consumption by a long shot. So, uh, but you don't accept the argument that that the developing countries are actually manufacturing, doing all the manufacturing for the developed countries, and that's why it's basically the pollution and carbon emissions are taking place in those developing countries because of stuff they're making for the West? I think it's partially true, but I don't think it's um, convincingly all true at all, no. Right, okay. Uh, I... See, with, with I've got a foot in both camps here because, you know, it says it right there, China's responsible for 29.3%. It's a very it? large proportion. Absolutely. And that's just one country. Now, I thought that America was the world's largest producer of Yeah, well, that's what everybody dioxide, wants us to think. But it's only producing 13.7%, whereas China's producing 29.3%. Mm, three times as much. Now, admittedly, China has a population that is three times the size of the United States. And maybe States. that is one of the factors. Absolutely. It, yeah. Now, that has got something to do with it. Mm. But I don't believe that we can completely wash our hands of the getting the manufacturing done in the third world. But I also believe that Trevor's wrong too to blame them entirely for the carbon emissions because... I'm not blaming them No, he's entirely. blaming us. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> saying it's a disingenuous argument to say, oh, look at the current emissions. Oh, they're... They're not coming from the West. They're coming from developing countries. So don't blame the West. Is what Lionel Shriver is saying. Yeah. Well, yeah, well she's saying that. But no, she's what saying, she's, she's saying, saying really but. is that it, it has the the load has to be borne by all countries, not just by the West. Yeah. If you look at China getting twenty nine point three percent of the population, twenty nine point three percent of the carbon emissions, with a population three times that of the United States, mm. if you had three times that, that end up at. Forty-two percent, or something like that, of the world's of the world's carbon production. So they're lower on a per capita basis than what they are in the United States. I suspect the United States has got a very poor record if you go take it per capita. Mm. But, but anyway. the United States is probably over the years becoming more efficient and doing things better, whereas Absolutely. the Chinese have been focused more on just cranking up production regardless of the uh, environmental cost. Absolutely, yeah. Because you only, only got to visit any major Chinese city and you'll see what it's doing to the air. Oh, there. God, yeah. It's brown. The air is brown. Yeah, I, was, I visited my brother a few years ago in Beijing mm. and it was putrid. It is. The air was just repulsive. It's yeah. really, really shocking. And, uh, you know, I don't know how people live there, frankly. And India is... In India's some respects, worse. Yeah, yeah, they say New Delhi has the just about the worst air in the world. Jakarta is is up there with with the worst of them. Anyway. Mm. Sorry, I'm distracted. I'm trying to I'm trying to see Look, these I, comments go. Oh, we I, can talk between accept, ourselves yeah. if you like. I accept yeah. to some degree the argument that developing countries should be cut a little bit of slack. I, I do accept that argument, but China. Ah, I'm not convinced it's any longer well, a developing country. I agree oh, with for you. Goodness I, sake. I, I, no, China is no longer a developing country. Is now a developed go to China country. and have a look, Trevor. I've it been to China. It is a, an amazing. I've been to China. Dynamic 
you know, country with lots and lots of high-tech stuff. They've got, you know, high-speed trains. They're, for goodness sake, they're building all kinds of stuff. They send spaceships to, to what, the What Lionel Shriver was saying was that uh, population is the problem. That, that was her argument. Hmm. So she was saying if you basically control population, then you've, got, you've solved the, the hmm. problem. But the point is, uh, are the people in the developing countries entitled to create a world like what we have here? So, for example, you might argue that, well, China's building all of these skyscrapers, lots of cement, lots of concrete, lots a of lot. stuff there. Yep, Much okay. more than you can imagine. But, but, yeah. but to a large extent... The West has already built them. So they're just trying to catch up to a standard of living that we've already created and we've deposited our mm. emissions into the system. Mm. So, again, it's disingenuous to say, well, we're not creating so much as these countries now, but that's because we already have done a lot of what we've wanted to do and these countries have got a long way to go. And if they're entitled to do the same things we did, then we've got a problem even if the population remain stagnant because mm. if you say that an African uh, living in a mud hut can now have a concrete home or whatever, like no, if no you're going to build cities for, Africans, no. for the developing world to catch up to the West, then we still have a problem. So just controlling the population is not No, enough. I think China should be encouraged and perhaps subsidised in um, doing things cleanly, you know, rather than... I mean, I, I, I certainly don't want to deny Chinese people or Africans or anybody the same standard of living that we have. I think everybody's entitled to a good standard of living. Mm -hmm. But I just think it has to be done smarter than just saying, sorry, guys, but we're going to burn a lot of coal and we're going to do a lot of polluting until we catch like, up. Like you did. So, so, <laughs> so if, the, if the West says to the developing countries, hey, you guys can't do that, you're creating a mess... Mm. But the developing countries say to the to the West, well, "You already on, created you a mess. You did yeah. it. You've created your mess. You're happy to be sitting there now and saying, telling us not to mm -hmm. do it. But you've you're sitting pretty because you've already accomplished what you need to. We want to get to your position, and now you're saying we can't catch up. Not saying well, they I can't think, catch I think up. they should be allowed to catch up. But I agree with Paul. You've got to do it cleaner and smarter. Yeah, cleaner well, then, and smarter. Well, then Why the not? West uh, needs to say to the developing countries uh, here." We need to cut a deal here because yeah. we've taken advantage of this and now we're telling you, you can't. Yeah, I agree with you then. We, Maybe we, some we, kind we of technology transfer or something yeah. like that. Yeah. We, Absolutely we everybody on the planet is entitled to a decent standard of living. Yeah. I don't have an argument with that yeah. at all. Well, I, think, I just think Lionel Shriver was disingenuous where she was saying, look, all the emissions are coming from the developing world yeah. and basically if you stop this uh, population explosion, then it'll all be fine was kind of what she was saying and stop talking about other things um, because it's the population is, is everything. But if you, if you take the view that the existing population is living in pretty decrepit conditions mm. and there'd be a lot of uh, emissions involved in bringing them up to a Western standard, then just simply stopping population growth isn't enough. No, I just think it could be done smarter. All right. Are you going to burn her books now? No, but, uh, but it's interesting because... <laughs> Because Lionel Shriver and Martin Isles of the ACL have a lot in common. Really? Mm. Because the right wing on issues... Oh, come on, here we go. Left wing, right wing. Yeah. You, you think, but, but you the think right she's wing, right wing just because uh, she makes a statement like that? She's, 
I think she is more than I thought she was before. But it just goes to show that we were very fond of her because of her freedom of speech yes. and cultural appropriation. Yes, she's issues. a free thinker. Yes. And she's a good writer too, and, according and, to you. And she is. And don't we often find that the free speech um, proponents come from the right? And Martin Isles and the, the centre, please. Yeah, and, and the centre. And Martin Isles of the ACL, I'll call him right wing as well. Uh, he was very big and correct yeah. on on freedom of speech. Yeah. I have to say, and good for him. And on that this point. is our problem. I think we find is that well, well, I find I'll speak for myself because is that the left has abandoned this whole freedom of speech thing. Sadly, they seem to have done yes. that. Yeah. But I don't see free speech as a right-wing issue at it all. It shouldn't be, but it, it, it tends to think fall about, that way more often than Think about the left-wing 50 years ago. They were yeah. all out on the streets yeah. demanding free speech. Right. It was a, it was a left-wing issue. Yes. It really was. Yes. You yes. know, in the 20th, 20th century, yeah. except in the countries that had socialist governments because they were all under totalitarianism and couldn't say whatever... What, mm. what they liked. Mm. But free speech has traditionally been a left-wing issue because, I mean, you know, what about the French Revolution? That was a left-wing movement and, the, and free speech was part of their success. Mm. But, the, you know, the 21st century left-wing, they've lost the plot as far as I'm concerned mm. on a lot of things yeah. and free speech is definitely one of them. Yeah. So anyway... Um, but I don't I, I, consider myself right-wing. And I'm very strong in free speech, as you know. I know. But that's, the more we learn about each other, the more. <laughs> well, what do, you, do you think we're losing Trevor, Scott? Just, oh, Trevor's been lost to the dark side. Well, well, let's see how right wing. Let's see how right wing you are. Paul. Oh come on, Donald Trump, Turkey, He's Kurds. A, oh, Donald Trump's a disgrace. You, you, would you just? Does anybody want to summarise what, what's happened with uh, Trump? And Donald Trump has tweeted over the weekend that he's withdrawing the United States troops from northeastern Syria, or the allegedly autonomous Kurdish, Kurdish region mm. in northeast Syria. Mm. Turkey announced after that that they're going to invade to take out the Kurds. Well, they want to create a, a 30 kilometer buffer zone, I think, yeah. between the Turkish, with the Turkish border. Yeah. And, they, wa and they want to wipe out some Kurds. And they want to kill some Kurds. They yeah. want to kill some Kurds because yeah. they've got a problem with the YPG at home, blah, oh. blah, 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 blah. Anyway, this is what Donald Trump has got himself into trouble for because mm. he said he's going to withdraw the troops. Now, he's done this basically unilaterally, and he's got a hell of a lot of flack from his own side over this. Doesn't but he's, so. he doesn't give a shit because he's actually just said, he says, no, I, I was elected to pull us out of these useless wars, so I'm oh. going to do that. And it, that. He went to the election he saying, might. I'm going to pull American troops out of these yeah. and Middle he probably Eastern did say that. conflicts. But he makes it up as he goes along because at, at any given point he can have a different position and say, this is what I was elected to do, you know. Mm. Uh I mean, he didn't pull them out immediately after he was elected, so, did he? So the poor Kurds, um, I was reading an article which basically described how through the years the Kurds have been screwed over numerous times mm. where by the Americans who have promised them the world. If by the will, British, by the Americans, If they by will everyone. assist. Mm. Um, because invariably they've been a minority force mm. in a country and if at the time that country is in favour with the Americans, then they'll squash the Kurds. Mm. But if it's a, a country which is, is out of favour, they'll, they'll prop up the Kurds uh, in order to topple 
that out of favour. Yeah, and they've also been suppressed yeah. by whatever you know local ethnic group controlled the government or the you know the, the politics of the country. Yes, because they've always been a minority. But they've so, been a minority across yeah. several different countries: Iran, Syria, Iraq, and parts of uh, eastern yeah. Turkey. But but in this whole fight against ISIS, ISIL. Yeah. Could America have had a better friend than the Kurds? No. Could the Kurds have done anything more to have exhibited loyalty and to the cause and to have done and more? Sacrifice. And sacrifice. A lot of them were killed yeah. in the fighting against ISIS, and the including Americans, women battalions. And the Americans dropped them like Brigades. a school case. And what's America going to do? If we are like the Kurds and we're just a bit inconvenient at the time, despite being, anything that we might have done, we we'll, we'll drop like a school. Being drop us like a southern school hemisphere well. Kurds. It, it just goes to show. Oh, it I know. Doesn't matter. It just is what is in their benefit at the time. Fortunately, and, Donald and, Trump and is a temporary aberration. Well, you know Trump's problem. Well, actually, here's an interesting thing. Just before I forget, I don't was, think he is temporary. I think there's no, a possibility he's not, he could he's not win. an aberration. He is just. He can a, only be president for a maximum of eight years. He, he yeah, I but, know that. But you'll get, the one who will be after him will be worse because the system know? created Donald Trump. The system created. He's not an aberration. I mean, people thought. Let's get rid of George W. Bush because the next one's got to be better. Like people will be saying, I think Cam Riley said this, you know, let's get rid of Trump because the next one's bound to be better. And at some point we're going to be saying, remember the good old days of Donald Trump when things weren't so bad? Like the system has led us to this. So, uh, so do you when, think it's the electoral system or what? It's, it's about Partly, power. Yes. It's, it's about power and the corruption of mm. the political system. And money has yeah. corrupted the American system in a, a very, very major way. Absolutely. I mean, Trump could do anything and get away with anything except to interfere with the uh, industrial military complex. <laughs> At that point... They would take him out. The Republicans <laughs> and McConnell and all of them said, What? Go and shoot someone down Fifth Avenue. We can handle that. Yes. <laughs> if you're going to actually pull out of conflicts in the yeah. Middle East, yeah. that's not on. No. Like that will be Beyond a reason pale. where they'll drop him and say, oh, have your impeachment inquiry. Let's yeah. get rid of him and we'll get, uh, we'll get Mitch in yeah. uh, and we'll get Pence in and we'll, it'll all be sweet because you can do anything but not muck around with the you know, military-industrial conflict. So... The interesting thing was when... Um, so you think this is going to be his last act, do you? Uh, he'll fold. Like, uh, he'll, he'll cave into what they want. He'll reverse, you know. Like, he, the Turks be, are just about already crossing the border. Right. You know, they're not going to wait. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't think the Turks will actually roll against the Americans. No, the Americans are already pulling out yeah, in already some pulling areas. Out, yeah. yeah. So, you know, good luck to the Kurds. When Turkey said you know, we're going to go in and, and kill them. The tweet from Donald Trump was, if Turkey does anything like that, I, in my great and unmatched wisdom, consider to be off limits, I will totally destroy and obliterate the economy of Turkey I've done before. Like, this he is the president is of the deluded, United States, of the it? most powerful military operation in the world, saying, eh, in my great and unmatched wisdom, great and unmatched, wisdom. I will totally destroy and obliterate the economy of Turkey. Oh my the God. man's mad. Isn't he, he is. He's yeah. closer to the microphone. I please. think he's very so. close to certifiable when he says things like that, isn't mm. he? So. Great and unmatched wisdom. 
That yeah, is delusion well, at certifiable insane levels. I you think. know, it's like on the... It's a podcast I listen to, Cognitive Dissonance. Mm. You know, they've often saying, well, you know, China has a great deal of respect for my great in, in enormous a brain, which is what... Yeah. Yeah, which is what um, Donald Trump said once. <sighs> you know, it's just I madness. The Chinese leadership are laughing over their drinks at Donald Trump, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, yeah. not completely laughing at what he's done to the Chinese economy, but I don't think any of them think he's a great and, you know, wise leader at all. He's so impulsive, like a teenager, you know? He makes it up as he goes along. Well... You know, they've been probably predicting the demise of the American empire and they just look at Donald Trump and, and double down on, on their plans, yeah. I would think. That's what I would be doing if I was them. So. Well, see, you know, if the Yanks do actually drop the Kurds, then I think Morrison's should be well advised to go over to Washington and sit him down and say, Donald, you know that joint military exercise that we've got going on in Pine Gap? It's going to be an Australian military exercise before too long. We want you out. He's not going to do that. I know he's Definitely not going to do not that. But do then, that. but then, what he should do is, on his way back to Australia, he should drop into Beijing and say, "G'day, Uncle Xi, how are you?" Oh, come on! <laughs> see, see, here's what should happen because we've been saying Americans are meddling in other countries all the time. Mm. And listening to this, you'd be thinking, "Well, what do you want us to keep meddling in another country?" Like he's actually offering to pull out of a country. The problem is he's abandoning an ally. So really what they should be doing is throwing their hands up, the Americans, and saying, we created a complete mess here uh, and we're not good guys to have around because we just fuck everything up. The United Nations peacekeeping force should go in there and here's a bunch of money and sorry and we'll just go away. What do they ever do? So, well... They, the, I mean, they the, don't do a lot of shooting, do they? The United Nations peacekeepers. Yeah, that's you know, the whole point. You've just got to have a neutral force between the no, two no, combatants. No, no. Oh, it oh, didn't do yeah. much. They didn't do much good in uh, Srebrenica, yeah. did they? Uh, yeah, I know Srebrenica. Srebrenica was a. They didn't do much good in um, the East African country. That Rwanda. 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 Yep. Yeah. They had peacekeepers there. Yep. They didn't do shit. Have they done any good anywhere? Good, good question. I don't know enough. But well, that's the what United my thoughts, Nations. The United Nations are. East Timor. Is, is, is we actually want the Americans to get out of the Middle East, but we don't want to leave the Kurds in the lurch. So there no. should be some sort of. No, the Kurds deserve U, a break. A, a properly operating UN peacekeeping force would be good. And, you know, so, a UN peace peace enforcing force, I think, would be yeah, even better where yeah. they actually, so, so, actually give them the option to actually pull the bloody trigger rather than just yeah. stand there and watch it happen. I think like more like the uh, African, you know, the Af African Union. Union of African countries. They have a, a an African uh, sort of intervention force of some, some sort. Mm. And I think they actually use their guns when necessary. So does any of this change your mind about America and whether yeah, it makes be me think we, in, need, we, in, sh we in shouldn't. Conflicts? I agree with you now, Trevor. We shouldn't have contracted the French for those big, expensive subs. We should have bought fifty cheap Japanese subs and armed them with nuclear-tipped uh, missiles. There you go. No, I don't think we should have armed no, them with that's, missiles. That's I, I, I just think, I honestly, believe. That <laughs> Jesus Christ, you can throw rocks at me for saying this if you like. But Got them ready. Yeah, I honestly believe it is probably time for us to say to the Americans, you have burned one too many allies now. 
and we are not going to allow ourselves to be the next one burned. We just have to prepare ourselves to defend ourselves by ourselves. Absolutely. Indeed. That's and rather than, you know, by siding with the Americans all the time, we're mm. actually making ourselves a bigger target with Absolutely. people like the Chinese. If we were to, to defend ourselves and, and seek cooperation in our region and, and sort of detach ourselves from the Americans, we'd actually be safer. We'd be detaching ourselves from the largest liberal democracy in the world, which okay. would yeah, be a big the, mistake. I know it's a liberal democracy. And that's important. A, it, it is important. It is important. But you, you can't ignore the fact that they have just cut one of their allies adrift. Well, they, they look like they're about to. I agree with that. That's, that's shocking. I, I wouldn't drop our friendship with the Americans over that. No, I would. But I would. And you were saying earlier you're not so right-wing, but sort of exhibit A to my, to my... No, it isn't. Yeah. But I would seriously counsel the Americans that they are doing something really, really wrong. Mm. Actually, in the chat room, Karen says that uh, Rwanda completely ignoring West Papua and the UN is a bit useless and we can't defend ourselves. Yeah, the UN but, didn't do shit in but, West Papua. So, Karen, I'm just interested. Do you think the, the US should pull out of um, uh, leave the Kurds alone and leave them defend themselves or, or what do you think should happen there? But when, it, when we talk about we cannot defend ourselves, go back to an earlier episode where I had Han Tu on and Australia can defend itself. Like if we've got a half a dozen half-decent submarines, we can defend ourselves from a Chinese invasion right now because it's extremely difficult to cross an ocean with a bunch of troop ships and if you've got good submarines and good air force, you can stop a large nation. It's, mm. it's tough and difficult. So it is. It's, it's easier than you would think yeah. for Australia to defend itself. Now, of course... You know, Even the, Chinese, the Normandy, uh, the Normandy the, landings were the, very, very high risk yes. at that time. Yeah. And so, they weren't at all sure that they wouldn't suffer enormous losses. Indeed. So, yeah. um, so go back to that episode, um, dear listeners, and check out um, my conversation with Han too about how, you know, our, the ocean makes a big difference. And if you were in charge of a Chinese troop ship trying to come here yeah. or or a destroyer or anything, and you're knowing there's submarines around, you, you would be worried about your chances of making it. Yeah. So, well, they'd have to get past Japan and South Korea first to come down here, wouldn't they? Oh, Japan's mm. not really on the way. It's no, like it's way it's up further in north, northeast yeah. Asia. Yeah, but but, but we should have, I agree with you, we should have bought more cheaper Japanese subs. Yes. And you know, go back 20 to of the them, 30 of them, Google whatever. submarines on our website and you'll see plenty of discussion. <laughs> <laughs> where I was describing how the current purchase is a complete nonsense. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah. The whole thing was designed to buy off South Australia because they'd lost the car industry. But the amount of money we are wasting on those submarines, we could have subsidised our car industry for decades. And they probably won't be delivered until 2030 or something ridiculous. Mm. And it was just an ambit claim by the Defence Force where they went, look, we probably need three subs. Uh Let's ask for twelve, and then we'll we'll negotiate our way down to three. And they asked for twelve, and and bloody um, Turnbull was uh, it? Tur- no, Abbott said, "Sure, you can have them all." And they probably fell off their chairs. And, oh, shite! Now we got to find guys to actually fill them. That's going to mm. be difficult. So, long story on submarines. Uh, we'll revisit that at another time. But 
when we're talking about America and, and my distrust of them and how we need to disengage from them to actually make ourselves safer. And you and Hugh Harris sort of accuse me of being some sort of name Chomsky sort of like um, character. Is well, not? On this sort of issue. <laughs> and I agree with them on yeah. that, yeah. Yep. <laughs> so I would like to uh, refer to uh, an article by John Menadou. So we quite often quote the John Menadou blog. Who the hell is John Menadou? Bit of background, dear listener. From 1960 to 67, he was private secretary to Gough Whitlam, leader of the opposition. He then moved into the private sector for seven years as general manager News Limited Sydney, publisher of The Australian. He was head of Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet from 74 to 76. Um, He was Australian ambassador to Japan 76 to 80, he returned to Australia in 1980, took up position head of Department of Immigration and Ethnic Affairs, appointed to head of Department of Trade in December 1983, Chief Executive Officer of Qantas, 86 to 89, Mm. Director of Telstra from 94 to 96, Chairman of the Australia-Japan Foundation, 91 to 98. How do you fit all that in? I reckon that's a pretty fair resume of somebody who knows... Something of how politics and the world works, particularly in the Asian region, mm. and has you wouldn't call that, you know, when you've been editor of the Australian, what did we say it was or uh, sorry, uh, general manager of news. The Limited. Australian's too right wing. We'll have to. <laughs> we, we can hardly give him a black mark for that one. <laughs> we we can hardly call him some lefty. Trotsky, sort of Chomsky, secretary yeah. to Gough Whitlam. Can, can we? Like seriously? <laughs> but that was Goff between nineteen sixty. That was after nineteen sixty-seven. He moved in there and became general manager of News Limited. Yeah, that was back when the Australian was actually a decent newspaper. True. You know that was back. It when hadn't you, got when as you, bad as it. No, exactly. it hadn't did, got anywhere near as bad as I what it is that. now. But, but can I give you a resume of somebody like that as being somebody that we can at least. Saying yeah, sounds absolutely. like a, definitely, a, a balanced, he, he, definitely taken seriously. Yes. Yes. Definitely absolutely. taken seriously. Yeah. What does what does he think about this whole US relationship? Is he still alive? Yes. Yeah. Oh. Okay. He runs the John Energy blog. People contribute to it with their I, articles. I assume that he just put his name on it and then sort of no. So Died. He, he curates no. Well, it and he, you know, with it. a career like that, he, he he must be getting on in years. Yeah. He's a fair age now. I couldn't tell you how old, but yeah. he's a fair age. So he'd have to be. Um, Okay, what does what does he say about these issues? Right? Shall we call him? Well, he's written an article telling us. I'm going to quote some of it. Good. The US is the greatest threat to peace in the world. It is an aggressor across the globe. It is the most violent country, both at home and abroad. Apart from brief isolationist periods, the US has been almost perpetually at war. Wars that we have been foolishly drawn into. The US has subverted and overthrown numerous governments over two centuries. It has a military and business complex, a hidden state that depends on war for influence and enrichment. Mm. And fortunately, many of our political, bureaucratic, business and media elites find it hard to think of a world without an American focus. Uh, We had a similar and dependent view on the UK in the past, and that ended in tears in Singapore. Good example. I mean, how close were we? And we said, help, we need to... Singapore, and then us, like... In the UK just well, the, just dropped us like the, a suitcase. Well, they were absolutely incapable of helping us at that yeah, time. Yeah, I think that they, you, they wouldn't you, even send our own troops back. Yeah, like, and that, that was that was so, a, that was a very big. They problem. could have done that. 
That was a very big problem. They didn't get a choice let, in let the me, end let, because our prime minister well, then just the US them is going to say, "Oh, we can't do that because of other problems." Mm. So sorry, we're busy over here. And they might. Yeah. yeah. The US has launched 201 out of 248 armed conflicts since World War II. In recent decades, most of these wars have been unsuccessful. They've got 700 military bases around the world. US fleets patrol in the uh, in strength off the Chinese coast. The US would have mass hysteria if the Chinese fleets patrolled off the Californian coast or the Florida Keys. I'd be as very surprised it's legally if they don't. Entitled to do. No, they do, they, they don't. Oh, I'd be very surprised if they don't have any ships. They don't. They don't parade up and down the coast Maybe like not the parade, Americans do. But they'll visit like they visit us occasionally. <clears throat> the US has been meddling in other countries' affairs and elections for a century. Uh, blah blah blah. Our long-term future depends on cooperation in our region and not reliance on a dangerous and distant ally. How long will Australian denial of US policies continue? When will some of us stand up? When will our humiliation end? Insofar as China is any sort of distant threat, it would be much less so if we were not so subservient to the US. The US is determined to make China its enemy. We are cooperating in that process. The US is a very dangerous ally. It is more likely to get us into trouble than out of trouble. We are joined at the hip with the most violent and dangerous country in the world. There we go. Thank I think you, it's John. partially true, but right. I, I don't. I think he completely ignores um, other dangerous countries right. that exist. He's, he's got a strong anti-American bias, I think. Well, Maybe well I think he's presenting but, but, evidence, though. Well, he has given, uh, you know, one-sided evidence. He hasn't said why America's gone to war in all those occasions. And in some cases, I think war was justified. You don't think the Americans should have got involved in the First or Second World Wars? Oh, but the, I was quoting yeah, figures post-Second World, World War. Wars. These are wars. All of those? Yeah. Uh, ones I was, do you want me to go back to the quotes? Yeah. Uh, the US has launched 201 out of 248 armed conflicts since the end of World War II. Oh, okay. Yeah. Been busy. At least they've been consistent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I, I got criticised for saying I honestly believe, but I've got no other options except to say I honestly believe, is that um, the Yanks were probably the last war they're actually justified in 100% was probably the Korean conflict. Oh, don't. You don't, yes, don't say that. You don't think they were justified in entering the Korean uh, conflict to protect the South no. Koreans from invasion? No, no. Oh, for God's no. sake. You can't real be serious? serious. Next week, Korean War. Oh. <sighs> okay. Next week. Can we just have your statement of faith here before next week? That the so, Americans. We're entirely justified in entering the Korean War. Okay. Is, that, is that what we've got? I think Trevor's going is to it? tell us is that, what that the South Koreans started it, not the North Koreans. The North Koreans invaded the South. You know, and, they and, ha- and the was... Americans were entirely justified in getting involved. I don't think they had any choice but to get involved. If you look, sorry, at, just tell me why, just so I can prepare for next week. If you look week. at what just tell me why. North Korea is like now, that just, would have been just, the whole Korean just, Peninsula. Just, just tell me, just. just no. so, because so the, the North Korean invaded the South and the South was left with no option but to fight back and they didn't have any, for, they didn't have any forces of their own. The only... The, only the North Koreans mm, were supplied by the Russians, Russians and, and the, the Chinese. Chinese. Mm-hmm. 
The only reason the Yanks actually got involved is because they had a military garrison in Japan. They sent them over there initially and then they backed them all up with conscripts and all that sort of thing with the with conscripts from yeah. around the world. And it was a multinational force it that was. was Led by the Americans, but it was sent in, and, and there were a lot of back. countries involved. Absolutely, there I've, were a hell I've been of to the war involved. cemetery in uh, southern South Korea, and you know, there's a lot of different countries represented there. Mm. So, in every civil war around the world, America should get involved. No, not, not a civil that. war. There's so, so not a ci- just, that was just, not a civil just, war. Just, you just, had two just, separate countries yeah. that were divided on the along the 38th parallel mm. by agreement. The North <laughs> reneged on the agreement and invaded the South. The South had no choice but to help and to put up their hands and say, "We need help." The Yanks came in yeah. and they pushed them back. Now. Where it <laughs> fucked up, and pardon the language, ladies and gentlemen. Do you see the, screen, the, wave, you see the waving finger in the yeah. screen? <laughs> Where it <laughs> fucked up was when, um, was when uh, after the Panmunjom, was it? Was that the successful landing of the Americans? No, uh, it was Inchon. Inchon. Yeah, near Seoul. Yeah. Just west that of was Seoul. Just after that, when the push drove them right up to the north was that what he should what MacArthur should have done was he should have got on to was it Eisenhower was the president then or not I don't recall no it was still Johnson no not Johnson the anyway whoever the president so, so basically was, because of an aggressive north the Americans were in a civil war the, oh, just because of an aggressive north the Americans were entitled to be there absolutely so anytime any country has an aggressor Fighting like the Americans can can go in is that what we're at? Like anytime there's a you, conflict around the world, you are setting me up for some sort of failure. But I like, honestly, like, like what made this one so special that America should be there? That perhaps they shouldn't be in some other civil war going on in Africa or something. Like, because or, these or, or civil other. wars are actually divide, are de- defined yeah. as a f- war <laughs> that happens inside of borders. Right. You had two separate countries. One country was the aggressor, the other country was the victim. Look, it was only a few years after the end of the Second World War and as we know, the, um, you know, the Communist Party of, the, of North Korea was the aggressor. It wasn't all the North Korean people. It was the Communist Party, the you know, Korean Workers' Party. Okay, and the South was completely innocent. No, it was a dictatorship. But at least it was a dictatorship of people who were... You know, had a so, relative so the degree Americans of freedom. supported a dictatorship, and that it was, was a military dictatorship, right? But of, of which who was installed which developed, as the military commander? Which developed, who, who was the commander? Which developed into a modern, flourishing, dynamic, liberal prosperous liberal democracy. What happened to North Korea? Did it develop into a prosperous, modern liberal democracy? No, no. it developed into one of the most tyr- tyrannical, totalitarian regimes in the world. So thanks, Americans, for, for you, know, you know, not leaving us with the whole peninsula like that. Exactly. Had the Americans not got involved, the entire peninsula it would, would, have be, been. Would, would have been taken over. Absolutely. Thank goodness for the Americans. Yes. Is Absolutely. That, that, okay, next week. And thank you, America, for your sacrifice. <laughs> thank you for your service. <laughs> next week. They lost a lot of people next, in next that week, conflict. Next week, Korea.
and okay. they lost a lot of people because MacArthur should have gone to the president and he should have said to, he should have sent next, next week Korea he should have sent the president have we run out of time already no, no, he should me, have sent the president because no, I want to do pro- like you throw these topics in like this and and rather than just just shooting off the top of their heads okay, I would like to do a proper no worries that's fine uh, research and a proper analysis right. and phone a friend and. Uh, <laughs> And do that. You're so, not going to get Cam Worley on the program again, are you? Well, I'll have to put him on the time limit. <laughs> can, can we call Hugh? <laughs> yeah, you can. Hey, um, anybody realise we just did a prisoner swap, by the way? Yeah, we did do a prisoner did, swap yes. with Iran. Yeah. Yeah, with the Iranians, yeah. How many Australians would know that we just did a prisoner swap? Well, Quite uh, a few, actually, because it was on the ABC website. Well, and no, it well, wasn't uh, so stated, it wasn't stated explicitly that it was a prisoner swap, but the Australian... You know, Foreign Affairs Department spokesperson, maybe the foreign, foreign minister herself, was asked, was it a prisoner swap? And they just said, we do not comment on sensitive matters like this, which is another way of saying, yeah, yeah. of course it was course a prisoner was. swap. We can't say. But we just don't want to say that yeah. publicly. So a couple of backpackers who were caught up in Iran, flying mm. a drone, were locked away for a while, and Iran said, hey, you got this guy locked up uh, yeah. in Australia, and... We'd like him back, please. So they weren't swap. quite backpackers, of course. They were travelling by car mm. and uh, having a great old time. Yeah. So, right. Um, where are we up to? I reckon that's probably. Do you think that's enough? I th- that's pr- enough. I think left wing. I think we've covered right a good range of topics there. I discussion. Think. <laughs> yeah. Did you have any Scott that you were keen to? Go through, or no. we can leave Malta next week. We or? can leave Malta next week. There's a few mm. here that have been carried over a few times. Yeah, so we, we got to deal with it. Um, we, we always have a surplus of material, don't we? We, we do. We indeed. do because the religious nutters never <laughs> never let us never go quiet. Do they? No, they don't. Yeah. In fact, they've become very very active in recent years, mm. and we have to do something about it. Yeah, actually, I mean, just um, before we. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say thank you very much to Tony because tonight Mm. I've had a Little Creatures Rogers beer, which is very nice. Thanks, Tony. While we're talking about beer sponsors, thanks very much to Woz, Wayne, Landon, Hardbottom, Bronwyn, Dave, Adam, Caitlin, Zach, Captain Doomsday, friend of the show, Anne, and Tony. Thank you indeed, uh, dear listener. We have patrons mm. for this podcast. Um, got a new patron. Are they left-wing patrons or right-wing patrons, do you think? Do you know? They're a bit of both. And uh, Camille uh, came on board as a patron with a very generous donation and um, just said hello via email and uh, she said she enjoys the podcast and mentioned that our Indigenous episode was one that she found quite challenging and she still mm. doesn't know what to actually make of it all, but enjoyed the challenging ideas that were in that. So That's what so we're I, about. Yes. I, I like that. Yeah. I like it when people – we often – we went through a spate there where people, when they used to give feedback, said, uh, enjoying the podcast, don't always agree with you, but uh, enjoy your considered mm. opinions. And I, I think that's a very, very good sign it is. myself. Yeah, it is. I hope it's we get quite more a people like that. When we get that. So yeah. sort of Camille was a bit along those lines mm. as well. So we that's good. We don't really want an echo chamber on this podcast, do we? No. No, so, we don't want an echo chamber yeah. at all. No. And even Otherwise, if, then, you know, if we had to have – if we had to have him agreeing with us all the time, I'd be screwed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and of course, 12th Man is the resident contrarian. You really get people's goat up. But, Do you know, I? Yes, oh. but, you know. Well done, yeah. 12th Man. 
Well done to me. That's right. And, you know, if you're out there and you're finding that frustrating, then just work with me as I, you know, enjoy <laughs> the challenge and try and rebut the outrageous ideas that he comes out with and just, you know, yeah. follow me as I, as I work my way through it. Thanks to – so, yes, we have patrons who donate. All we ask is a dollar a show. Um, Cheap. Have you been with us since Morrison got elected? In which case, that's about 20 to 25 episodes ago. And if you've been listening religiously uh, ever since, then you're not a patron, then it's time to stump up because uh, if you're listening every week and you're enjoying it, then we expect you to become a patron. And Mm. it helps to cover some costs and we'll do some extra bits and pieces Mm. as we get more money. And... If you are enjoying it and you're not prepared to pay that dollar a show, then what I'd like you to do is reach for your podcast app right now and find us there and hit the unsubscribe or delete button. And and goodbye. We'll see you in a year's time. You can come back and see if you like us or not then. But that's the whole idea of it, dear listener. So You can listen to it for free if you log on to the Secular Party (laughs) Facebook page. Right. Well, no, it'll still hook into this. Well, you can always listen to it for free. That's the point. Of course they can. But I want you to feel guilty if you do. That's what I want to do. So thank you to the patrons. Sean, Janelle, Craig, John, Landon, Wayne, Oyama, Alison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Watley, Jimmy Spud, Kane, Bronwyn, Matt J, Robert, Rod, Palais, Maddock Man, Dominic, Liam, Dave, Karen, Daniel, Harry, Peter, Captain Doomsday, Aiden, Wheat Watcher, Andy, Murray, Melinda, Adam, Greg, uh, Professor, Dr. Dentist, Will, Glenn, Craig, uh, Matthew, Clinton, Alexander, Paul, Tom, Tero and Camille and the non-patrons, Dean, Ken, Was, the beneficiary, Mr. Anderson, Corinne, Matt Mann, David and Beverly, thank you very much. It mm. is appreciated and I'm still toying with, with the idea of a little call-in section at the end of these podcasts. Where a people, what section? A call-in where people could phone oh, in. And, okay. But uh, it will require a little bit of technology and so if we get a few more patrons, I'll do it and mm. we'll give it a go. It's dangerous because... Who knows what crazy people could ring in, but uh, <laughs> it might be one of those things that it doesn't actually make it onto the actual recorded podcast unless it's, <laughs> it's really high quality. But yeah, yeah. anyway, it's, it's worth playing yeah. around with and Indeed. some people could you never chip know. in with interesting ideas. Liam Hardbottom might call us. Indeed. Yeah. So if you like the idea of us introducing a sort of a phone-in segment at the end, which would be duly edited for the podcast... Um, uh, become a patron and we get a couple more and then I'll introduce that and see what happens because mm. um, I'm enjoying the feedback in the chat room and it annoyed me that I lost contact with the chat room earlier and I couldn't see what people were saying. So if you were saying things and we didn't talk about your comments because it wasn't quite working correctly till halfway through. So uh, that's good. If you've got feedback, if you've come across an interesting article, read a book, you've got an interesting idea... Mm. I uh, think we're completely nuts about something. Um, send yeah, us a message. Just let Trevor know how wrong he is over <laughs> not, the, not backing the Americans in South Korea. Do you yeah. know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm reading a, a book about uh, postmodernism yes. and I've only read bits and pieces of it. You know, I sort of flipped through it and today I was flipping through it and I came across a, a chart on one page and it was comparing uh, numbers of deaths in the millions under capitalism and socialism. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. yeah. And what was it? It was vastly cap- different to your calculation. But, <laughs> yeah, but it was actually a capitalism, socialism. Oh, yeah. Um, and I was, uh, I was intrigued. I don't know how he calculated the numbers exactly. He didn't break it down much? Look, I'll bring it in and show you. Yeah, I'd be interested mm. in that. 
That was one of our better episodes, Death by it Capitalism. It was interesting, yeah. Mm. It was interesting. I enjoyed that one. Yeah. But anyway, mm. I'll bring it in and show you next week. <laughs> right. I hope you enjoyed that, dear listener. We had fun, as always. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, charging on. We just keep rolling through. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will be back to the normal time next week, which is Tuesday at 7.30 Brisbane time. 8.30 New South Wales yes. and Victorian time mm. and Tasmanian time. As the saying goes, we are one hour and 20 years behind the rest <laughs> of Australia. For the next we'll give those southerners time to have a few more drinks before they listen to the podcast. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so bear with the, uh, with the time differences. So um, good on you out there. Thank you very much. Talk to you next time. Bye. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Bye now. See ya. New fair income power generation. More reliable <laughs> fair income power. What I call fair income power. More fair income power. Fair income power, as you've heard me call it. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf, on their phone, and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.